Welcome back to the Lars Resort, uh, which remains a podcast with myself, Lars Sievertson, brought to you by Betson. Yay! So um, let's uh, let's pull up a chair by by the bar of the resort and uh, order a mysteriously colored beverage with an umbrella or something in it, maybe a sparkly thing. It's a it is a Tuesday after all. I'm uh, I, I'm still in Norway, but heading back. Pretty soon, big thing today, of course, Real Madrid versus Man City, a City on the hunt for that treble. You have to say that on paper, Real Madrid would be the biggest obstacle to that, and that the away game in Madrid is the most difficult one uh, along the way. So a big night for Man City in store, but that is in the very near future. I would like to, to talk about the very near past, because first of all, yikes, what a day of football. This Bank Holiday Monday was, Bank Holiday Monday in the UK anyway, um, relegation battle in chaos. And and I mean, remember my new mantra that, that bad is good? I, I, I mean, watching these games, certainly you would have to say that there is a strong case for, for bad teams just being good for entertainment. Bad is the new good, no doubt about that. Crazy scenes, 23 goals. Over the three games on Monday, and, and all the games were kind of were kind of interesting. I think we got to start with Everton, because <laughs> OG listeners, you know, you guys who migrated over with me from the Norwegian pod, you know, I, Everton possibly my biggest blind spot because every time I predict something to do with Everton, it immediately goes the other way. Whether that's good, whether it's bad, uh, I, 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 you know. Everton, one of the teams I have a soft spot for, I'd be more than happy to to see them succeed. They do resonate with me somehow. Um, but whenever I think they're on the right track, things go wrong. Whenever I spell doom and disaster for Everton, things immediately seem to improve. And, and, and let's just let's just look at some numbers ahead of this Brighton game, right? Since the first of January, since the turn of the year, Brighton have created the highest XG number in the Premier League conceded the second lowest so in terms of their underlying numbers they're right up there with man city actually so far in 2023 perhaps uh because they don't have the brilliant individuals that man city do uh it's more about the method and the collective being very clever perhaps that is why they've underperformed a little bit on those numbers they've not scored as many goals as they should have because you know it's brighton uh, and it's what they do i guess they've conceded a couple of goals more than they should have so they're actually just seventh in terms of points in this period but they've been playing brilliantly anyone who's been watching them with their own eyes will attest to that and uh, the numbers back it up now everton not so much, uh, slightly less so since the 1st of January. They've actually been okay in attack. They're ninth in the league for XG created, which is kind of decent given where they are in the table. But they're the second worst in the league for XG conceded. Only Forest, the Tricky Trees, which is their nickname. I keep having to look it up because it seems silly, and I guess I never caught on to it. But the Tricky Trees, very good. Uh, they, they have, Only Forest have a higher XG number uh, down the other way. So... Actually, let's change the parameters here a little bit to the specific time that Sean... Yeah, Sean does. Okay, let's change that. So from the 30th of January onwards, yeah, Brighton's still the highest XG in attack and the second lowest in defense. That scans Everton now eighth highest XG in the league in attack over the last 15 games and the second worst in defense. So that's interesting. Now, XG is not God. XG is not the be-all and end-all. 
but it is essentially counting shots, counting chances, and then weighing them, uh, weighting them for how statistically dangerous chances from those positions and in those situations are. So it's a way of over a big enough sample size, and I think 15 games is just about big enough to be interesting to look at. It'll give you a sense of whether your team's attacking and defensive process is working. I think that's a way of putting it. It doesn't mean this is what actually should have happened. It just gives you an idea of whether the team is is functioning or not. And, and what it shows us is that since taking over, Sean Dyche has helped Everton become more punchy going forward. Across the entire season, they're in the lower half of the table for attacking XG. But since Dyche has took over, they're actually eighth. Uh, but he hasn't been able to fix their defense, which still remains one of the worst in the league. Now, this feels feels a little counterintuitive, counterintuitive when you look at their squad, because they'd have a lot of hardworking players. They have a lot of people who run around a lot, uh, but they're very short on creativity. And they only have one credible striker in the group, and he's often been unavailable, right? So you'd think it'd be the other way around, that Everton would be able to the string to, to put together a reasonable defense, but be a little bit uh, blunt up front. That's not been the case, certainly looking at the XG. And it certainly wasn't the case here, uh, because, of course, the underlying numbers, they suggest that Brighton should give Everton a bit of a thrashing, and very much the opposite happened. Uh, I thought there were a couple of things going on here in this game. First of all, Everton, you have to say, just a huge physical effort. Like they worked, again, hardworking players, but they worked really hard to disrupt Brighton. Very aggressive. Maybe the biggest change since Dyche came in is that they just look a little bit more aggressive. Maybe he's maybe Dyche has just got a knack of firing them up a little bit more than than what Lampard was able to do. I'm not entirely sure, but they, they just fly into challenges and, and really make it awkward for the opponent. Um and they were really quick and direct on the counter, especially uh, exploiting the spaces that kind of appeared behind Brighton's fullbacks. Uh, it looked like they had a very clear plan of keeping their wide players, you know, quite wide and, and getting the ball out there quickly after regaining a possession. And that caused a lot of trouble for Brighton. But also the thing that Brighton do, uh, the, the thing that they do that's really cool is that they kind of tempt teams into pressing them. Uh, I think Tifo did a good video on that on YouTube if you want to look that up uh, about Brighton and the sort of way they, they go about things. They, they want people to come on to them. They're like the bullfighter. Uh, and, and I guess Dominic Calvert-Lewin would be the bull here. They get them to charge. And, out the, and because the thing is, when you press, pressing, of course, which is the big thing in modern football, when you do that, you do leave a gap behind you. And in the sort of space in the formation that you've vacated to go out and press. So Brighton will tempt opponents into it. And then just like at the last minute, like the bullfighters swerving Dominic Calvert-Lewin, uh, they, they, they will sort of get out the way and then they will play the ball. And then they will use the space that's opened up to sort of play through it. And it's, uh, it's, it's very risky if you get it wrong uh, because you can lose the ball in some really, really bad areas of the field and, and immediately concede. Uh, but um, as we've seen this spring, and when it works, it can lead to some really thrilling football and, and, and some really good results. Now, I think Sean Dyche has really earned his coin here uh, because so far under him, Everton have actually pushed up a bit more than we would have expected. There are many games where I've seen... Uh, some games I've seen Everton play... Uh, under Daesh now, but like, ooh, this is a much higher line than I thought they'd be keeping, and they've been sort of pushing people up. But but in this game, it, it was like if uh, Daesh and Everton just went, fine, you know what? You want us to press so you you can exploit the gaps? How about no? 
how about we don't do that? How about we don't do exactly the thing that you clearly want us to do? And instead, we kind of sit in and deny you that space to play through. So the sort of the, the wild bull of Calvert-Lewin did not charge. He did, the, the matador was standing there. The, the matador, I guess, being Lewis Dunk in this metaphor, was sort of limply waving his flag. And Calvert-Lewin, uh, like Ferdinand, the much more placid bull, uh, would just, uh, just eat some grass or whatever. And, and it just, uh, you know, they, they stood off. And instead of opening themselves up and, and creating those gaps by pressing, they stood, sat back, and, and Brighton just couldn't find those spaces to, to play through. It was, it was a very, very clever uh, way of doing it. They didn't fall into the traps that, that Brighton lay out for them. And so Brighton just couldn't really get their game going. And they ended up, uh, I mean, they ended up having to put a ton of crosses into the box. And it felt like that. I was watching the game thinking, God, they, they, they put a lot of crosses in. And, and I checked it today, and they played 44 crosses in the game, uh, according to whoscored.com, the excellent stats website, whoscored.com. 44 crosses in the game. Now, their average this season is somewhere between 18 and 19. So more than twice as many crosses as usual, Brighton ended up putting into this game because, Le- because Leicester, because Everton just kind of sat back and denied them space. And whatever you think, of Yerry Mina and James Tarkovsky as footballers, you know, defending crosses against Danny Welbeck and Dennis Undav. I think that's something they can do. I think those guys can do that all day. Uh, I actually think Tarkovsky is a bit underrated. That's a whole different conversation. Uh, Evan Ferguson, who came on, has a bit more punch to him. But but still, those guys, the physical battles on crosses, they can deal with. They can deal with it all day, and they dealt with it all day. So, so tactically, very clever from Sean Dyche. Brilliantly executed, more importantly, I guess, by, by the players, because you can can put a good plan in place. But if your players sort of stink up the place, it doesn't really work. And And of course, all of this... I mean, there's a danger of getting too deep into the weeds with the tactics because all of this becomes a lot easier when you score after 30 seconds. That just kind of makes your life life an all easier. Now, I think the tactic would have been the same from Everton, whether they had a lead to ride on or not, because they seemed very well you know, prepared for that. But of course, it does help. It does help getting 1-0 early on when your plan is to sit back. And, and it helps your confidence as well. People feel, all right, this is working. And, and Abdoulaye Ducore, you know, marginalized towards the end by Frank Lampard. Rumors of a falling out there. Daesh has brought him back into the fold, and he's just been huge for them. And we've we sort of we've lamented the scarcity of big, tall strikers at Everton with Calvert-Lewin, the only real one. Um and we know that he has availability issues. He's not always, you know, unfortunately has been hurt a lot. And we know that Sean Dyche likes his big men up front. And it seems like using Decore almost like a second striker or, or a very advanced midfielder who gets forward, kind of the same thing, has just given them an extra physical presence in the box. So he's kind of the, I mean, <laughs> he's kind of turning into the Ashley Barnes character of this of this team. You know, if we think about the, the old Sean Dyche Burnley team, when you had Chris Wood, uh, all elbows and stuff up front, just winning challenges, and Ashley Barnes kind of dropping off a little bit, also elbowing people, obviously, constantly. Uh, but but, but, but Ducouré, almost, not, obviously not quite the same at all, but uh, there, there, there's something there. Uh, Dwight McNeil doing things, you know, amazing stuff from uh, from Everton here. Now, Brighton was going to say that Brighton had no response. That's not, that would have been a little bit disingenuous. They did have a response. They created chances. It seems like a weird thing to say out loud, but at 3-0 for Everton, Brighton were kind of pushing in, were starting to, 
to find some joy and you kind of felt maybe maybe there's something here for them but they they rarely did carve everton open the way they've done with other teams uh, for the reasons we just talked about but they did create some chances and pickford had to be on it and i guess the brighton strikers maybe not the sharpest finishes out there you know perhaps evan ferguson will be the solution he, he really does look like he has an awful lot of potential uh, perhaps there's more to come from from Dennis Undav, but you do feel that a striker who's a little bit more reliable in front of goal is like the one big thing that Brighton should should try to find this summer. I do like Ferguson. Um, maybe they just go into the season and trust him to to kick on and develop rather than sign someone who could uh, could potentially block his development. I think that's a big decision Brighton have to make this summer. Uh, Roberto Di Zerbi. Uh, talking about how they need to get better at playing uh, games in quick succession. He felt they were a little bit low on, on, on energy, and that, that I'm sure that was true. Uh, Brighton still very likely to end up in Europe one way or the other, so so playing every three or four days, that's just going to have to get used to it. That's just going to be the way forward for them. Uh, and I suppose should also be mentioned that they had some injury absentees. And I just all of it kind of comes down to, I think, Brighton suffering a little bit from... Uh, What's becoming another one of my maxims next to bad being the new good is that uh, that money in football is kind of like gravity. Money has a gravitational pull in, in football, in the league. Clubs that have a lot of money, even when they're badly run over the course of 38 games, they generally just kind of tend to, to gravitate up towards the top of the table. Like there's a gravitational pull of money that will pull you upwards if you have it. Uh, because as much as I love talking about tactics and clubs that have a vision and everyone's aligned and all those kind of fun TED talky words that we use, all that stuff is important. But a universal truth in football is still good players win you games. Like that's just that's just how it goes. You can look at Tottenham this season. How many times have you, dear listener, watched Tottenham this season and thought, "Wow, this is a this is a well-oiled machine. <laughs> you know, this is this is working to plan. This team is really much more than the sum of its parts." Like, it's not something we've often thought about Tottenham this season. Whereas with Brighton, you keep thinking when you watch them, like, "Wow, it's so good. They move the ball so well. They're so clever." Here we are, you know, thirty-five, thirty-three games in, they have almost the same number of points because whatever Spurs do wrong, they still have Harry Kane and Son Heung-min and a few others going forward, whereas whatever Brighton do right, their guys are still Danny Welbeck and Dennis Undav. And with all due respect, it's just not the same thing. So I feel like almost every year, there are a couple of teams early on in the season, even midway through the season, who are like punching above their weight, and we we read, or we in some cases write articles about how good and clever they are. And that's all valid. You know, it's good content. Clearly, some teams are smarter than others. No doubt that this season, you know, Brighton and Brentford in particular are kind of showing that these clubs are are run and coached by some of the smartest guys in the room. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Fulham doing really well as well. Um, but it always seems to me that the further we get into the season, the more games are behind us, the closer we get to 38. Normality just sort of gradually starts to, I say normality, the money starts to assert itself. And the clubs with the money, they just tend to float towards the top end even if they're badly run and the less wealthy ones they do tend to fall away no matter how clever they are and whether that's down to individual quality depth depth of squad i think is a big deal here and it just seems to happen and that's why you know the top six whether you hate the term or not i know a few people do they do tend to end up being the top six with the exception this year of course being Todd Bowley's Chelsea, the sort of ever-exploding clown car uh, of Todd Bowley's Chelsea, who are a hot mess. 
and and even if they did win the game uh, at the weekend, so I guess we should lay off them for for once. They did they did beat Bournemouth, uh, which was bad news for me in the betting column. But you know, fair fair enough. Sooner or later, they had to win a game. Um, Newcastle, unsurprisingly, perhaps being the club that's going to nip in and claim that spare top six spot. And um, Newcastle, who I guess are somewhere in between here, right? It would be wrong headed not to acknowledge that that good coaching has taken place and they're getting performances out of some unexpected players at Newcastle. They have also had the resources to attract guys like Kieran Trippier from Atletico Madrid, get Bruno Guimaraes in when he was uh, looked at by all, a lot of other big clubs. Uh, you know, Alexander Isa cost a ton of money. Sven Botman was linked to a lot of big clubs. You know, these are guys who, you know, however much they cost or didn't cost, they wouldn't be at Newcastle if they didn't know that Newcastle had a lot of money behind them. And, you know, there's there's a big sort of upward, uh, they're an upwardly mobile club, uh, fair to say. If they were still, I think if they were still Mike Ashley's Newcastle, uh, coached by Steve Bruce, uh, I, I, I'm not convinced those guys would have uh, would have signed on for that. Newcastle, of course, lost to Arsenal this weekend in a very entertaining game of football. And, and, and I do think it could have gone either way here, because Newcastle also did good things in the game. Arsenal just a little bit sharper. But, but but my big takeaway from this, aside from uh, Arsenal, you know, a bit of a weight off their shoulders, I think, but Ar- Newcastle becoming hilariously annoyed at Arsenal engaging in some uh, some shenanigans, some gamesmanship, some time wasting towards the end here. And we've touched it earlier. I really don't understand why Eddie Howe and Newcastle seem to want to become the sort of the Atletico Madrid of, of England in, in that regard. I don't I don't get it. And we can actually quantify this. Um, in a recent piece in The Analyst by one Oliver Hopkins, who looked at Opta numbers for essentially time-wasting, you know, which teams take the longest to get the ball moving again before restarting play at a set piece, right? Now, the teams that are the quickest are the ones you'd imagine. It's Liverpool and Man City. They want to get going again because they're confident teams who want to play football and go out and beat the opponents and score more goals and do stuff like this. Now, down the other end, the ones that waste the most times also mostly the ones you'd expect. Let's read out the bottom five. It's Brentford, Everton, Southampton, Bournemouth, and Newcastle. So, so Brentford, who are punching way above their weight, and you know they're very clever with their set pieces, and they want to clearly a team who want to slow things down and stop the opponent and stuff. You've got three teams who've been battling relegation all year. Uh, and Eddie Howe's Newcastle. Those are the time wasters in Chiefs. And I think one of them makes less sense than the others. Now, this is clearly a very conscious choice by Newcastle. You know, much has been made by Eddie Howe spending time in Spain and studying Diego Simeone during his time out of management. There's no doubt that Newcastle, they're a sneaky team. Their players are quick to roll around when it's convenient. You have Jason Tindall behaving like he's like the second coming of Rui Faria on the sidelines there. You know, gamesmanship, I guess, is the polite word for it. People tend to say gamesmanship when it's the team they like, and it tends to be other words when it's the other guys. You know, It's one of those things. And uh, from one perspective, it kind of makes sense. Newcastle see themselves, I'm sure, as a team who want to challenge the establishment and all of this. And another thing is that because they're funded by, by Saudi Arabia, actually, you know what? Sorry, that's my bad. They are funded, they're owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund which we, of course, know have nothing to do with the state of Saudi Arabia. We've got to be very clear on this. Absolutely nothing at all, uh, clearly. Now, because that's where the money comes from, uh, it's unlikely that they're going to be very popular with neutrals and rivals anyway. So they might as well sort of lead into this no one likes us, we don't care thing. As as Eddie Howe 
once said, we're not here to be popular, we're here to compete. And from one perspective, you, you know, if, if no one's going to like you anyway, might as well. Now, I still think this is a strategic mistake by the club. I think, first of all, the sort of excessive time-wasting and gamesmanship uh, typically associated with Atletico Madrid and now so favored by Newcastle and Eddie Howe, it's kind of the prerogative of the underdog, I feel. Like Atletico Madrid, again, being the, the, the role model here, they're like the working-class, salt-of-the-earth team, always in opposition to their flashy neighbors, Real Madrid, and their infinite money and glitz and glamour and superstars. And I mean, this is not entirely true anymore. Atletico Madrid have spent a lot of money, but broadly speaking, that's how they see themselves. That's their image. And this sort of scrappy fight for every advantage, bend the rules if you have to, because the other guy has all the other advantages, so he might as well try to be sneaky. You know, that's the kind of way they're looking at it. And they kind of make sense in that context. But here's the thing about Newcastle. You're owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund. No sane person will ever see you as the underdogs of anything for, for a good while. You know, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for your role model image-wise to be a scrappy working class underdog. You're not. You know, your role model should be Manchester City. Because this continues to be the challenge of talking about Manchester City, is that whatever you think of their ownership, and the way they've gone about funding their operation. I, I have my views on it. You, you, you can have views on it, but it's also impossible not to acknowledge. You have to be very wrong-headed, certainly. You have to try very hard not to acknowledge that they've also like really pushed boundaries in terms of what they've done on the pitch, uh, that they've put a lot of money into the academy and stuff like that. They're bringing, uh, some, they're, they are bringing players through their ticket prices, broadly speaking, are less crazy than other clubs in the league. They they do seem to have a real imprint in the local community. They've got some really likable characters in, in, in the teams and players that you kind of enjoy watching and, you know, you kind of like their vibe. It's hard not to like Jack Grealish, I find. They've appointed the greatest coaching mind of his generation to be their manager. So if you're going to be this sort of soft power tool, uh, for a Gulf state, for a dictatorship, with all the sort of depressing aspects that come with that, Man City is clearly how you want to go about it. Like, the operation is is impressive in, in some ways. And if you have all the money in the world, the people are always going to question your motives and whether you should be there in the first place uh, on the ownership side. Clearly, what you want to do is build a football club that's really hard not to admire on some level, not just for being successful, but how you go about your business. And I remember thinking like during some of the more negative periods of, of Mourinho and the early Roman Abramovich days at Chelsea, when they just tried to suck the life out of all their big games and sabotage things. And just, they were really unlikable, uh, boring team. I just kind of think if you have all the money to spend, why would you make this? And, and, and similarly with Newcastle, I mean, they play decent football, but you've got the infinite Saudi wealth behind you to create a football team. And, and the thing you want to be famous for is like being a bit cheaty and wasting time. Like, this seems weird. I mean, the fans aren't going to care. Your fans are not going to care. Football fans everywhere, like we, I say we, because I'm one as well, we are all the same. Uh, when our the clubs we support get criticized for something, we will tend to just kind of pick that up and turn it into a positive. You know, that's what you do with stuff like that. Uh, so, so with the support, it'll be like, no one likes us. We don't care. You know, we time waste when we want and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but I do think it actually does matter what people think of you, generally speaking, in the world. Uh, football clubs certainly generally act as if they care a lot about this stuff. 
And in terms of public goodwill, when you're owned by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, you're kind of starting in the red a little bit to begin with. But I think there are upsides to being a club that people admire uh, rather than one that people find really annoying and, and, and inexplicably so. Like, why are you like this? Uh, and of course, when opponents then hit you, with your own medicine like Arsenal did, it just becomes really funny. I remember watching one instance in this game of an Arsenal player, like clearly exaggerating an injury to waste time. And that's something that as a fan and someone watching a game of football, usually you find that annoying and frustrating. I just thought it was really funny because we've seen Newcastle do it all year. So it was very satisfying to to see them get some of their own uh, turgid medicine. Now, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it matters a little bit. I don't know. When when I watch Man City, I'm kind of conflicted because, because they do do incredible things on the field i fundamentally disagree with the ownership model i've i find their way of sort of lawyering their way out of alleged wrongdoing a little bit distasteful but but it's impossible to deny that what they're doing on the pitch is is incredible from a sporting uh, standpoint Uh, with newcastle it's like you have concerns about the owners but my god they're good at wasting time now these are these are some high-end time wasters that 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 doesn't seem like quite the same thing (laughs) It seems weird. So it's early days with the Newcastle project. We're still waiting to see what kind of club the new ownership want to turn them into. They're ahead of schedule on the field. That's that's for sure. It looks like they're going to qualify for the Champions League earlier than I would have thought they were going to do. I had this down as the year when they sort of uh, where they established themselves as the best of the rest, and then they can kind of attack the top six and the top four next season. That, that's what I thought. Obviously, they're ahead of schedule. hasn't hurt them that Liverpool, Chelsea, and Tottenham have all had problems, but still, it's very impressive progress. And, and time will tell what kind of club culture and image they will end up uh, creating and wanting to project. I'm not sure being the most accomplished time wasters in the Premier League is a vibe that's worth going for, but seems to be working for them this season. Anyway... I didn't really want to talk about Newcastle all that much. That, that, that was the wrong turn here. It just kind of came to mind when people were all laughing at Newcastle for being angry at Arsenal's time-wasting. In, in the game itself, Arsenal continued to look liberated. That's the word I'm going to use after the Man City defeats. It just seems like a weight's come off their shoulders a little bit. Um, okay, maybe you shouldn't compare anything to the City game because they were so good, but certainly compared to the, the the West Ham and Southampton games in the second half against Liverpool, this looks like a team who are enjoying their football again rather than one that's really anxious. Um, and uh, they, they look good again against Chelsea, but again, that was Frank Lampard's Chelsea, so who knows? This was against a much better team in Newcastle and again played like the pressure was off. They had more of the swagger and the confidence that we saw earlier in the season. And it does make it hard not to think that the the mental strain of trying to keep City away was at least part of why their form dipped uh, the way it did, when it did. I heard a discussion on the radio this weekend, I think it was on 5 Live, where they were discussing, like, is second place progress for Arsenal this season? Or is it an opportunity missed? And I was like, I understand why people have this discussion. It's a I guess it's a good question to kick off a discussion about Arsenal's season, but I tend to think that it's it's clearly both. Like, and, and that doesn't have to be a contradiction. It's entirely possible to, for it to be both be tremendous progress and a great season and also an opportunity missed. Now, we spoke about it the other week. When, when you start the season with the fifth or sixth biggest wage bill in the league and one of the youngest squads, if not the youngest squad, I think they were before January anyway, uh, and you haven't made the Champions League for a good number of seasons now, 
clearly from that starting point, finishing second is a great season. That That's a no-brainer. There's no room for discussion there, I think, unless you're like an attention seeker or a simpleton. Finishing on or close to 90 points with that starting point is massive. It's huge progress, brilliant effort. In their last six seasons, Arsenal have finished 5th, 8th, 8th, 5th, 6th, and 5th. Clearly finishing second is very good. Like, But simultaneously, when you do find yourself ahead of this sort of incredible, unstoppable Man City team, you find yourself in a position where you actually have a real chance of beating them. Of course, it's a missed opportunity when you drop points to West Ham and Southampton and you give up a two-goal lead to Liverpool. Yes, that is the dictionary definition of an opportunity that was there that has been missed. Uh, but, but, but I just don't see how those two are, are uh, contradictory. I think it can absolutely be both. We're not quite there yet, of course, with the league. Uh, bets on offering odds of 9.0 and Arsenal winning the title seems unlikely. Uh, but but uh, City have got a lot of games to play. Who who knows? Anyway, I started talking about the relegation battle. That's where we started out, wasn't it? Uh, Everton game, not the only crazy game on Monday. We had Nottingham Forest beating Southampton. Uh, the result, as expected, method, maybe not. Uh, Southampton refusing to lie down and die, but but they just they have run out of road. Really interesting to see which players they're able to keep in the summer, because I think you have the makings of a very good and exciting and watchable championship team there that can go straight back up again. A lot of young players, who I think, in a year in the championship might not actually be the worst thing to happen to them. Uh, lots of games to be played. You know, they have to. They'll get. They'll get kicked around a bit. So they have to grow up a bit in that sense. But uh, very intrigued to follow them. To see if we can try to watch some games when the when they play in the championship next season. But I worry about Leicester. And we spoke about it last week. The odds compilers, the betting markets. They thought Leicester were more likely to stay up than not. I worried because I thought that for, for that to make sense, they're going to have to go and beat Fulham on Monday. Because if you don't beat Fulham, then you've got Liverpool and Newcastle up next. That looks tough. And then you've got West Ham in the last game. But even winning that only puts you on 33 points, which might not be enough. And with Everton getting that surprise win at Brighton, it definitely won't be enough. Almost definitely. So Leicester had to win that game against Fulham. And boy, did they not win that game. That was, my God, to go into a must-win game like that and concede those first two goals. I mean, that is extraordinary. Uh, stinky, stinky defending yet again by Leicester uh, for the second one and clumsy nonsense uh, for, for the first one. It was like, it, yeah, you know what it was? It was like a corner shop that hasn't been restocked in a while. No bueno. Yeah, that's that's one for the Kinder Bueno enthusiasts out there. Thank you. Thank you. I may have used that joke before on other podcasts. This is it's one of those. Every six months, I'll drag that out, and my girlfriend will tell me, please stop you. It's not a good joke. Stop, stop saying it. I think it works. I'm happy about it. This is where I should have the laugh. I don't have the box with the laugh track thing in front of me. Anyway, conceding five to Fulham. Fulham, who were without Tim Ream in defense, who's been very good. They were out Andreas Pereira in midfield, who's been much better than expected this season. And, of course, without Mitro up front. So that's what, three out of their four most important players? You'd, you probably would say those three press Palinia, probably like the most load-bearing Fulham players this season. And Leicester just go there and get stuffed. I mean, you look at this Leicester team, and, and just a number of these guys will go to much bigger clubs in the summer or 
bigger and more successful clubs, whether they go down or not. But it's such a clear cautionary tale of, of, of slightly contrary to what I was talking about earlier, actually. It is possible to have good individuals, but to be so incoherent collectively that you end up dropping down a division. See, remarkable stuff that Leicester have managed to, to put themselves in this position with this squad. Um, but I guess that is a hallmark of a classic relegation battle, isn't it? You should always have at least one team that you look at it on paper and think they're not going down. And then they just do because everything goes wrong. That that, that, that does happen occasionally. Uh, Leicester this season, they've scored the same number of goals as Man United. Like one is going down, I think. Other one, uh, very likely still to get a Champions League spot. I mean, this is crazy. I suspect a big part of this problem, I, wouldn't, I worry that I'm repeating myself here, but I think you have a squad with seven players out of contract this summer and a further eight going into the last year of their deals, right? You have a lot of people who know that their future lies somewhere else. And you have a lot of people who want to move on, whichever their division they're in. And I don't think that's great for, for team cohesion. It's a team game, after all, and you want everyone pulling in the same direction. Uh, you have a lot of people pulling and uh, not a lot of cohesion going on in, in that team. They will, they will have to sell their best players uh, to finance new ones, I guess, or just contract extensions for the ones who are interested in staying. Very, very tricky situation for Leicester going forward. Absolutely need to beat West Ham on the last day of the season. Uh, and when we know, I mean, we know West Ham. What are they good at? They're a threat on the counter and they're dangerous on set pieces. That's what West Ham do. Leicester are in the top four in the league for goals conceded from set pieces. And they've conceded the second most goals in the league on the counter. So West Ham is a nasty little game for them. And and if West Ham, they might be on the beach. Maybe there's a European final on the horizon for them. But watching Leicester get carved open repeatedly by like Tom Kearney and Harrison Reed tend to think that, that could get bad. Do we think they can get a point against Liverpool or Newcastle? No, we do not think that. So I think Leicester are doomed. I, I think they're gone. Now, I guess the consolation for Leicester fans would be that I have thought that about other teams, including Everton just a few days ago. So me thinking maybe that's just the problem. I should stop. Let's just think less and just embrace that there are some fun, uh, fundamentally irrational shenanigans going on down in that end of the table this uh, season. And if nothing else, it's great, great entertainment. Uh, a bit of a betting segment at the end. Let's sneak one in. Huge game for Man City tonight, I've noticed. There's a chance it's already happened when you hear this. But, you know, the single biggest barrier between themselves and the treble is Real Madrid. They go to Madrid. I'm going to keep it simple. There is no simpler way. Erling Haaland to score at any time. Uh, bets on are offering uh, 2.01. So just over evens, effectively evens. You know what? I do. You th- the question then becomes very simple. You ask yourself a question. Do you think there's a better than 50% chance of an Erling Haaland uh, goal in this game? I think there is. I think there's always a better than 50% chance that the the Combine Harvester of Doom, the Ice Troll, uh, <laughs> Ivan Drago, whatever you want to call him, that he will score a goal. You know, throughout his career, the tendency for Holland has been, you know, the bigger the occasion, the more he'll step up. He's he's completely fearless in terms of being uh, being affected by the occasion and stuff around the game. It, it just it does, doesn't affect him, I don't think. And, and the fact that they're away from home, I don't think that lessens the chance of a Holland goal at all. I think we know if City are pushed back a little bit here, just means he has space to run on the counter. So so with his goal scoring rate being the way it is, any time you could get a price of, of 2.01 on him to score at any time in the game, 
I mean, I, I think that's an opportunity we got to jump on. I, I don't see any evidence that he's less likely to score against strong opposition than, than weak. I think he's he's almost fixture-proof in that regard. There's no particular logic to it. He's got 12 goals in eight games in the Champions League this season. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say he'll take a penalty if there is one after giving it away to Gundogan and being told off by Guardiola this weekend. I think it's I think it's all Erling uh, Holland this weekend if he gets one. So it's him or Mares who takes the penalties. I don't think Mares is going to start. So nothing overcomplicated. Erling Holland to get a goal tonight. Uh, 2.01 with bets on. Absolutely worth a punt, I think. Now, it's uh, possible... It's possible you only hear this after the game. Even probable you only hear this after the game, I realize. So uh, let's look ahead here. Um, uh, We've spoken about Leicester on this episode, so let's tie it into that. They're abominable defending. They host Liverpool on Monday the 15th. Liverpool now fully in the hunt for a Champions League spot. They're winning games of football. I am backing Liverpool in this game. Just got to find the best angle betting-wise. But I actually think... I think hitting the Asian handicap here. So if you're not familiar with that, so Liverpool minus 1.0 on an Asian handicap as opposed to the regular handicap. It just means that uh, if Liverpool win by more than one goal, uh, you get your winnings, whereas the stake is returned if Liverpool win by just one goal. Right? So it's a regular. It's like a regular minus one handicap, but with a hedge in the sense that your stake is returned if they only win by one. So, so you keep uh, you keep a little bit in reserve in that regard. So basically, I, I don't see a way... I see no version of this where Liverpool don't win, and I think they'll win by a, a good margin. So uh, bets on offering 1.94 on that seems like a good one, because honestly, I don't... don't Le- Leicester, I mean, if they manage to get it together for this game, that'll have to be one of the great coaching feats by, by Dean Smith on the training ground this weekend, and I just don't see it. So, uh, so yeah, backing Liverpool, minus 1.0 on the Asian handicap, just a straight minus one if you're feeling brave, but you know, it's away from home. You never know, maybe they can keep the score down, Leicester, so want to hedge against just that one goal win. So, Liverpool minus 1.0 on the Asian handicap at 1.95 or 0.94 right now. I think that's decent value next Monday. And as always, I may have forgotten to say it over a couple of episodes. I should do, do, do gamble responsibly. Uh, know your limits and set your limits. And uh, uh, just one little advice there that, again, I think I've mentioned it before, but always just kind of whether you gamble a little or a lot, just kind of check in with your overall balance for the last sort of three months, six months, whatever, just to make sure like you haven't lost more money than you're than you're comfortable with because that kind of thing can kind of sneak up on you a little bit if you don't pay attention that's that's just good uh, responsible gambling advice uh, it's meant to be a bit of fun add a bit of extra excitement to the football that's what it does for me i hope that's what it can do for you anyway um thanks for your company on this fine day i am assuming it's a fine day uh, wherever you are if it's not a fine day i mean i'm, I'm happy you still spent this time with me if it wasn't uh, a, a fine day. It's one of my last days here in Norway before heading back. And after having had remarkably good weather, the rain is here. I'm looking outside now. It's raining sideways. For, or at a 45 degree angle at least. It's sort of a diagonal uh, crossfield ball from Kevin De Bruyne type angle is uh, what, the, what the rain is coming down at. But that is... You know, that's a key part of the Norwegian experience, I think. Being here, uh, especially in the western part of the country, if you spend any time here and you don't get hit by the slightly sideways rain, uh, that's just, you haven't really seen the place, have you? So, you know what? Some people see the rain and they think, yuck, I'm staying in. I see the rain and I think, wow, it's time to go fishing, isn't it? <laughs> as soon as I've edited this, I'm going to head straight out, maybe maybe secure some dinner 
to enjoy alongside uh, Man City versus Real Madrid tonight. We will see. Thanks for the company, everyone. I, I hope I'll hear you next time.